That was Brahms, Intermezzo, and C Major. All the great composers wrote short pieces that could be sold to the middle class for entertainment. The piano was the TV of the 19th century. However, a musical piece like this far surpasses any sitcom in terms of elevation of the human spirit. Today, I am devoting most of this podcast to a piece I have written about food and the Industrial Revolutions. So here we go. It is commonly said that there were three Industrial Revolutions. The steam engine, the age of science and mass production, and the rise of digital technology. All three used fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas to leverage a radical and lengthy increase in the world's standard of living, punctuated by wars that inevitably sapped economic lifeblood and spilt the blood of many lives. And now we are entering the fourth industrial revolution, which is just as radical in its effects, this time unlinking the first three revolutions from fossil fuels in a desperate attempt to reverse environmental damage before our planet kicks us off. While most historians speak of the Watts engine as typifying the first industrial revolution, the Bessemer flash furnace is typifying the second, and the silicon chip as representing the third. It is important to recognize that during these periods of technological leaps and wars, food production was also undergoing a revolution. Napoleon famously proclaimed that an army marches on its stomach. Well, during all three industrial revolutions, an army of workers marched on their stomachs too. They had to eat, and the little garden patches dotting pre-industrial revolution countrysides disappeared as workers moved to tenements and other forms of concentrated living. At the dawn of the first industrial revolution, the age of coal and steam, People were still baking bread in stone ovens, and grain was usually stone ground and not sifted to remove its life-enhancing bran and germ. This, of course, was healthier than the white flour that appeared during the second Industrial Revolution, when grain was cracked rather than ground and air classified to divide it into fractions with specific protein and starch compositions the stone ovens of the villages, which were fired by wood, transitioned into cold-rolled steel ovens fired by coal and then oil. Also at this time, vegetables became less available, especially in the cities. But thanks to Napoleon, Nicolas Appert developed the apertization process, otherwise known as canning. Although they lost half their vitamin C and thiamine in the extended cooking process, like uh, the glass that's half full, half the nutrients still remained. Hence, workers whose 12-hour shifts and six-day weeks did not provide much time for outdoor work, they were able to buy nutritious vegetables already prepared and, of course, handily put in cans. A hundred years later, when home refrigerators became affordable and efficient, Clarence Birdseye developed a method for freezing vegetables that actually tasted better than canned vegetables and were even more nutritious. Another development of the food industrial revolution was preserves, jams, and jellies. Although the technique of mixing a sweetener in equal portions with fruit and boiling it to preserve vitamin C and flavors was nothing new, in fact thousands of years old, the method did not become popular until a cheap sweetener became available. It took 200 years but uh, from the beginning of slavery, but distant colonial 
sugar plantations using slavery and mechanization, eventually provided sugar that made preserved fruit affordable for all the classes. Breakfast is a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. An efficient calorie and nutrient delivery device, workers and their children could down the requisite life-sustaining foods in a short time. France and Great Britain were two centers of the rapidly developing industrial revolutions. In Great Britain, breads and crumpets were served with tea tempered with a heavy dose of milk. The tea provided caffeine derivatives that perked up the workers and made it less likely for them to have an on-the-job accident. And their children paid better attention in the classroom and grew up to become more attentive workers themselves. The milk served as an important source of calcium and other minerals, as well as B vitamins and folate, so essential to, providing neural, to preventing neural tube defects during pregnancy. In France, workers ate baguette, the perfect industrial revolution bread, along with butter and jam. This was washed down with café au lait made from the robusta beans grown in French West African colonies. It too was heavily dosed with boiled milk, and the nutritive benefits just described were similarly available in the French breakfast. Meats were an important part of the Industrial Revolution diet. In 19th century America, beef was more important than chicken or pork. Thanks to America's grasslands and its midsection, beef raising was highly successful. But in the days before superhighways and railroads, the beef cattle had to be driven to market on hoof. Such extended exercise toughened the animal's musculature, cross-linking its collagen fibers that cause a chewy texture. Should you have been privileged enough to eat high on the beef cattle, that is, should you eat steak or prime rib or center cup rib, there wasn't much need to tenderize the meat. But because of the animal's Olympian quality musculature, all the other cuts were chewy and needed prolonged cooking. One method was to corn the beef. It was routine to go to grocery stores and buy beef from a barrel, floating in a brine whose salt concentration was determined when it floated an egg. <clears throat> like corned beef on St. Patrick's Day, such beef was stewed for hours with vegetables. Braised mutton was popular throughout Texas and other western states. The sides of many brick buildings from the 19th century still advertised mutton. The semi-arid lands of the West, too dry for even growing wheat, did support sheep husbandry. When the animal's fur-making abilities gave out, it was slaughtered. The meat was especially chewy, and to make it palatable, one had to braise it. First, one browned the meat in fat, then added vegetables, water or beer, and simmered for, for hours. In the days before refrigeration, chickens were not practical. Chicken flesh is very wet, spoils quickly, and uh, supports the growth of the pathogen salmonella. What about pork? The great Jewish philosopher and physician Maimonides warned against its consumption, asserting that it was by nature unsafe. While Maimonides was indeed a great man and was right about a lot of things, he fell short of the mark with pork. Contrary to his prescriptions, Pork is safer to eat than chicken, which can harbor salmonella and is sometimes fatal. Likewise, pork is safer than beef, which can harbor both anthrax and brucellosis, both of which are also often lethal. Trichinosis, found in pork, 
the one pathogen found in pork is almost never fatal and often cures itself over time. Pork, it turns out then, was a very useful meat for the American Industrial Revolutions. It was easy to raise, it had a very high feed to edible portion ratio, and it tasted good. Pork legs are customarily made into hams. In the 19th century, such hams were dried, the Smithfield ham of Virginia being an example. It could be stored for months, then be reconstituted by soaking, then baked and served with a glaze and with sweet potatoes. In the late 19th century, some enterprising meat scientists developed water-added ham. This involved soaking ham in a brine containing sodium phosphate, a salt that miraculously caused the ham to absorb water, making it soft and tender. The federal government put a limit on the amount of brine that could be absorbed. They referred to it, the limit, as green weight plus 10. In other words, such hams could not weigh more than 10% above their original raw weight. Water-added hams are now produced in far greater quantities than dry hams throughout the world. Besides sodium phosphate, water-added hams also used sodium nitrate. This is a chemical used by the Romans to prevent the growth of botulism bacteria during sausage making. Sodium nitrate had the added advantage of fixing the red pigment in pork, called myoglobin, into a pink color that would hold its hue no matter how long it was cooked. Sodium nitrate became the key to a whole range of other industrial revolution meats, bologna, lunch meats, and many sausages. Such meats were slow to spoil, kept their pink color, and did not promote the growth of botulism bacteria. These bacteria get their name from the Latin botulus, which means sausage. Under quasi-anaerobic conditions, the bacterium produces a toxin that, even in minuscule amounts, is quite lethal. In order for pork to join the ranks of handy Industrial Revolution foods, it needed to be prevented from harboring botulism bacteria. Sodium nitrate made water-added hams, bacon, hot dogs, and lunch meats safe for sale and cheap. After World War II, and shortly before the Industrial Revolution, meats took a lurch to still another direction. No discussion of Industrial Revolution meats would be complete without the hamburger. It started in Russian restaurants in Hamburg, Germany, which specialized in ground raw meat mixed with pickles, onions, butter, and spread on rye bread. We call it beef tartare. The Hamburg-American line, which brought so many Germans to the American shores, featured a cooked ground beef patty on its menu. But it wasn't until 1900 that the first real hamburger enclosed in a Viennese-style bread made its appearance. A Dane by the name of Louis Lassen is said to have been the first to pioneer the concept. In any case, if you've seen the movie Founder, which follows the life of Ray Kroc, the founder of... McDonald's, you can really appreciate how the principles of the Second Industrial Revolution, standardization, repetition of motion, etc., contributed to the fast food revolution. The hamburger involved grinding up all the, but the most tender muscles, achieving a maximum yield. No need for long, slow simmering. Five minutes on a griddle or grill and dinner is served. Again, perfect for tired workers and their families. Their burger was pretty much a safe meat until the 1980s, the time of Reagan. 
In an effort to lower the cost of meat, President Reagan cut the founding for meat inspection at the same time that the speed of the processing lines was increased. This pretty much led to the rise of E. coli O157, a bacterium known for its ability to destroy the kidneys of consumers who unfortunately bought cheap hamburger and didn't cook the life out of it. At the same time that hamburger was becoming the daily fare of the American worker, chicken pecked its way into first place. It flew there thanks to extensive research by American University ag schools, which labored long and hard to determine the optimal diet and also manipulated the chicken's genes to design a bird that would gain full weight in only 13 weeks and use only two pounds of feed to produce a pound of edible flesh, far more efficient than beef at about 8 to 1 ratio. Another key factor in the chicken's rise to stardom was the consolidation of slaughterhouses and the employment of undocumented workers who were threatened with deportation should they make any complaints about safety or working conditions. The Industrial Revolution chicken is a miracle of biochemistry and genetics. The bird is a giant filter, converting all sorts of agricultural waste into edible flesh for the workers. For example, common components of the bird's diet are yellow grease, which is spent fryer fat and waste baking fats, chicken feathers, and some unmentionables whose names I shall not utter out of consideration for the more delicate listeners. And now we quit the animal realm and join a happier community, the potato. A native of Peru, it became an important contributor to the industrial diet shortly before the French Revolution. So many revolutions. Anyway, in the waning years of the French monarchy, Augustin Parmentier, a pharmacist, became interested in the potato as a way of feeding French peasants who were starving thanks to the profligacy of Louis XIV, the Sun King, who considered the personal glorification to be more important than the welfare of his subjects. Sound familiar? Anyway, Parmentier became good friends with the Sun King's grandson, Louis XVI, who supported Parmentier's efforts to grow potatoes and to establish a school of baking based on the replacement of wheat with the potato. However, too little, too late. King Louis's head was lopped off to assuage the anger of the French peasantry and to pay for the sins of his grandfather. But by that time, Parmentier's work on the potato had penetrated to all levels of French society, making it an important source of calories in the diets of the peasants as well as the bourgeois. At the same time, the Russian and German governments were also promoting the potato as food for the poor. Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, declared the potato to be a royal vegetable and stationed guards around his potato gardens, then removed them at night so the poor would sneak back in and steal the potatoes, a good example of reverse psychology. By the mid-19th century, Europe's potato farmers found that much labor and time could be saved through the heavy use of fertilizer. Shiploads of guano carved from islands off of Peru were imported. Within those loads of bird excrement were seeds of destruction, the spores of Phytophthora infestans. Over a period of millions of years, it had co-evolved with the potato upon which it preyed. Because of the widespread use of guano, the potato blight led to the destruction of the European food supply and widespread famine. Ireland suffered the most. 
over one million perished of starvation during the mid-1840s, and two million left the Irish shores forever. By 1849, the famine came to an end, not because of the termination of the blight, but because there were three million fewer mouths to feed. The French fry, which has an obscure etymology, is the perfect industrial food. As detailed in a full chapter of Eric Schlosser's splendid work, Fast Food Nation, the potato has been engineered to fit the exactitudes of an industrial society, easily mechanized, cheap, easily stored, and good tasting. So many attributes have converged to make the French fry so perfect for the masses. First, the potato cells have a fairly low sugar content, so when fried, the potato fingers develop a golden color rather than the deep brown color and burnt flavor associated with caramelized car carbohydrate. Second, the amylopectin molecules in the starch granules curl when heated, so they can't project out of the cooked starch granules and cause the potato pieces to turn wooden and dry as, the, as they cool. This means they can be blanch fried in advance to swell the starch granules, then frozen, and then popped into hot fat at the last minute, and they still retain a soft, moist interior covered by a crispy skin. In general, fried food of all sorts are good industrial food. The fryer heats anything quickly and efficiently, consuming little in labor or energy in order to feed many people and put smiles on their faces. Food additives have been critical to the food industrial revolution. The bun that swaddles the burger or hot dog is impossible without food additives. In order to maintain its softness days after it has been baked, warehoused, shipped, delivered, and stored at point of destination, the hot dog or hamburger bun has to remain soft and pal palatable for weeks. Any bread is tender the first day. But on day two, day three, day four, day five, breads not made with certain food additives turn increasingly stale and rigid. One of these additives is a fat derivative called mono and diglycerides. Its unique chemistry gives it emulsifying properties similar to those of egg yolk and buttermilk. Another additive is calcium propionate, which functions as a mold inhibitor. It's what makes the very concept of selling burger buns or bread loaves in plastic bags possible. Without it, breads kept in plastic would rapidly mold because the plastic traps moisture that encourages mold growth. Propionate, which is naturally found in Swiss cheese, is toxic. The use of propionate has resulted in stores with 100-foot-long shelves loaded with all sorts of breads. Some are sandwich breads and some are hearth breads, some are white, some are whole wheat, some rye, but whatever the shape, whatever the grain, whatever the color, the entire aisle smells like death, a bread cemetery full of bread corpses. I don't know if anyone has ever used a gas-liquid chromatograph to study dead bread aroma but it's quite pervasive and it's quite depressing. 
It's nothing like the aroma of freshly baked bread. It's nothing like real hearthbread bakeries, which display their loaves without packaging, allowing the crusts and the crumbs to off-gas a glorious mixture of aldehydes, ketones, and organic acids, all associated with the metabolism of the yeast cell and all associated with the browning of crusts. The beverage you might have with a third Industrial Revolution fast food dinner would likely be a soft drink. It is probable that billions of fat pounds clinging to the bones of Southern and Midwestern Americans, morbidly obese, suffering from heart disease and diabetes, were generated from the consumption of soft drinks. After years of research, direct causality between sugar consumption and obesity is still difficult to demonstrate. That's not because there is no relationship. It's because it's so complex, making it difficult to ferret out the smoking gun. And it just isn't a single smoking gun. It's an entire arsenal, which includes the pancreas, the hypothalamus, the vagus nerve, metabolic syndrome, lack of exercise, use of food as an emotional crutch, and TV advertising, and more. The fact is, soft drinks are an industrial revolution food, and the workers are getting so fat they can't enter the factory and they can't fit into the production line. Well, I hope this gives you a little taste for just how food changed during the last three industrial revolutions. You have to give humans credit for innovation. But what's even more exciting, and even bizarre, is the upcoming fourth industrial revolution. While we humans are converting our entire energy grid and transportation systems to electricity and maybe hydrogen, our food is also changing. My predictions for the future? The family farm is increasingly a quaint thing of the past. Natural food stores will continue to offer old-fashioned foods, but as time passes, the only thing old-fashioned will be the pictures on the packaging, like Horizon Milk which is organic, but it comes from enormous dairies, not family farms. And the picture on the carton is of a cow wearing a bell. Animals who stand on concrete their entire lives, housed inside a mammoth structure, never seeing the light of day, do not need or to wear bells. Grocery stores will still offer grass-fed beef and other relatively expensive products of family farms. But these will take up less and less of a store's product mix as methods of mass production continue to make inroads. Meats are being replaced by meat analogs. Vegetables are increasingly grown in skyscraper farms inside the cities themselves. We may start becoming entomorphagic. Most of our fish are now grown on farms. That trend will continue as our oceans grow increasingly depleted. There will still be a few corners of the globe where fish hang out, off of Greenland, for example. Hopefully, we do find a way to stop cutting down rainforests in South America, Indonesia, and Africa. One thing is for certain, though. Soylent Green was just a movie. Then again, nothing is for certain. Finally, we come to the section on Project Hope and Fairness. I would be remiss in not bringing up the goal of my later life, which is to make some contribution toward the economic sustainability of the West African cocoa farmer. And as you know, I do this by building mini chocolate factories in villages in Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. Today, I finish this podcast by giving you a little piece of news, that we have developed the packaging for the bar that will be sold in the United States. It is called the African Choco Bar. 
The top of the label has an African print of open cocoa pods. It has been designed by the renowned Nigerian-American artist Abe Onichoyi, who lives in San Luis Obispo, and some of whose paintings hang in my former business, Mama Ganache Artisan Chocolates, which is located at 1455 Monterey Street. <clears throat> you can see a picture of our new bar. It'll be um, on, on the email that I've sent you. Please help us to make West African cocoa farmers economically self-sufficient. We are currently raising money so I can give chocolate classes in Pezouan and help David make smooth chocolate. Please donate to Project Hope and Fairness by visiting www.projecthopeandfairness.org and click, clicking on Donate at the bottom of the page. Or send a check to Donations, PH&F, 1288 Warren Road, Cambria, California, 93420. Please make the check out to Project Hope and Fairness. Thank you so much for your interest. And now we finish with the second half of Brahms' Intermezzo in C major. Thank you. 